Welcome to Establish the Edge. I'm your host, Mike Leone, here with an exciting edition for you post-NFL draft. We have the launch of Underdog's Best Ball Mania 4, and this podcast is brought to you by Underdog Fantasy. If you use promo code ETR over there and you're a first-time depositor, you can get a match bonus up to $100. So make sure to use promo code ETR over at Underdog Fantasy. And yeah, we want to break down this contest. What better way to do it than to bring on Justin Herzig, who does best ball content for us at Establish the Run and is the only person who has made it to the finals of all three of the Best Ball Mania contests the previous three seasons, including taking down the first ever Best Ball Mania 1. Justin, thanks for joining me. Appreciate it. I'm starting to feel like Doyle Brunson when he was winning the World Series of Poker with just like, you know, a few of his friends 30 years back. I think someone posted yesterday that in just the first day of the BBM4, they're like 30, it would have been 37% full for the best ball mania way back when. Like that's how much growth has happened. That's how many more people are playing this. It's insane. Yeah. I actually kind of want to circle back on that point as we get into this podcast as to when you think this contest will fill and what the implications of that have on your drafting strategy. But let's outline what the contest is overall. I'm assuming most of the listeners here are familiar with best ball and underdog fantasy in general and best ball mania, but this is a 677,000 person tournament. If you're watching on the YouTube channel, I've got the details up from the website there. $15 million prize pool, $25 in entry. A lot of us junkies, Justin, will enter up to 150 teams. I know last year I didn't participate as much as I wanted to, but I've already got uh, you know a bunch of teams under my belt this year looking to to up that quite a bit. And you have to finish top two out of 12 in your regular season league, which is weeks one through 14, to advance to the first round of the playoffs. And then you have to finish top one out of 16 to advance last year. That was one out of 10, that first quarterfinals it's one out of 16 this year. And then it's one out of 16 again in the semifinals, which is the same as last year. And then is the finals 450 people. It's actually slightly less than last year. 441. 441. And you can see by the prize breakouts that it's really top heavy you know, even if you make the finals, even if you're top 10 in the finals, it's crazy top heavy. First is 3 million. Second is 1 million. Personal preference would have liked to see first be 2 million and then kind of spread from there. But I understand marketing reasons. It gets up there. You start getting out of the top 10 though, and it's uh, it's going to be a painful finals for you. You can recoup some money along the way if you advance to the different stages, but you're really playing in the playoffs to get into the top 10 top five really and it's it's unlikely that you're going to do that quite frankly it's such a huge tournament but uh damn it justin we're going to try the other huge wrinkle for best ball mania four is the addition of the regular season prizes last year we had just kind of like a one one-off bonus for the top scorer in the regular season for a million dollars this year they flattened that out. First is five hundred thousand dollars, but they're actually paying out like was it like almost top one percent of all regular season scores? It's about that, yeah. So roughly top one percent, and that changes a little bit. You know, I wrote a best ball manifesto on established the run where I really broke down kind of what the expected value of different strategies was, and that was all dictated towards the playoffs. Now there's some things that are going to change with twenty or is it 33% with 33% of the prize pool going to the regular season as opposed to just that one-off bonus? 
Yeah. And I mean, I think from a structure wise, it really is important to think through like, hey, how are you trying to attack the tournament? Because, yep, last year it was, hey, what? I don't know. 90% of the prize pool was in that final week seven. Not eh, almost all of it was in the playoffs. 90% was in the playoffs. Majority of that, probably 75% or so, were like in that week seven, week 17. And so that's where there was so much kind of focus. This definitely takes like a, hey, a two-pronged approach of I need to think about, okay, how do I attack from a advance rate, from a getting the best possible uh, regular season scores to try to get some capture? Because, yeah, $500,000 the regular season is still substantial amounts of money. I think that's what the equivalent to about third place, maybe more than third place for the overall playoffs. So, like, you know, it's, it's worth considering. Um, but there still is $10 million. And of that $10 million, like if you finish in the top 1%, so top four spots overall for the playoffs, like your EV is over a million dollars. Like there's no question that we still want to be playing this as a GPP for that week 17. Um, so we can get through like, hey, how are we adapting? How are we kind of changing our structure? But for the most part, I think it's just very important to be cognizant of, hey, what are these prize breakdowns? How can I optimize teams? for both of them, ideally. Yeah, and I'm trying to think through like what changes when I did the best ball manifesto to now. And first of all, one of the things the best ball manifesto, I know you, Peter Overset, were really high on stacking last year. And I was kind of like into it, but like, you know, it can't hurt, but I, I didn't totally trust how important it was. And the research definitely showed that it was really important. You know, once you get to the playoffs, winning, you know, those, those single game or those single week tournaments, having more correlation gets you more upside. And it was particularly true in the finals, which was interesting to me because I kind of expected it to be more important in like the smaller field quarterfinals and semifinals. But, you know, if you think in terms of DFS, the final size is like kind of like what the juke is each week on DraftKings. And um, you're at a point where you do kind of hit that right combination of of upside and um you know, having to get less things right. And I also think the correlation stuff from DFS, Justin, is a little bit different when it's best ball scoring too. That like you, the odds of, sometimes in DFS, the larger the field, you need to be more perfect to win the contest. And the correlation doesn't matter as much. With best ball, I think you can split the difference a little bit, understanding that you don't have to use all the scores from your stack. You're not locked into those players, but that that's a little bit of an aside. Yeah. And I mean, I think it's interesting to kind of think about like how we got here because like I've always been very big into stacking. If you look back at like that original BBM team that won it, it was a three QB build with all three QB stacked. And one of those was a game stack with the Atlanta Kansas city one. And so like, this has always still been like a thought process, but I think it was a year or two ago, you put out some research and it was, Hey, stacking is good, but you don't want to give up more than like a round or two round of value overall. And I think that process, when you were going through the analysis, still made sense because it's heavily focused on like the advanced rate aspects, the how do we do this from a season-long standpoint. When we started getting to do these larger fields from the 50 people in the BBM finals were one to 450 last year, 441 this year, that's where the stacking, that's where the game stacking is that much more important. And I think it's interesting because, you know, you and I were talking like, hey, come February, we're talking about BBM for how are we going to, what kind of research should we be doing? Like, how should we be talking through this? And my number one inkling is like, you know, I think from last year, like just learned, it is just so important to stack. And we've seen it, yes, across your entire portfolio, you can get some edge in advance rate and, you know, in the playoffs advancing. Obviously, it's so important for the week 17, especially for the game stacking. 
But then you also have the kind of tales where some of the best teams that we were seeing in the regular season leaderboard as well, maybe they stacked that Jacksonville. They found that team that really just was hitting on all cylinders at a discount early on. So I think like there is just continuing to see these evidence, these outliers, this overall trends around the importance of stacking both from a regular season, but then also game stacking from that week 17. Yeah, and one of the biggest takeaways for me last year, again, as someone who wasn't as convinced about the game stacking for week 17 and now more convinced of it, I was still doing it because it didn't really harm you to do so. You know, you can kind of, I'm a big proponent of like not, obviously micro takes and player, you know, micro player takes and analysis matters a ton in terms of having a strong portfolio, but I'm, I'm pretty loosey goosey in terms of like, I'll take the ADP value. I want to diversify a little bit, just personal preference. So week 17 game stacking just made it pretty easy to do that. You know, you didn't have to reach a ton to get complete those stacks. So I'll definitely be doing that again, even with the prizes in, in the regular season. I don't think it's that difficult to integrate week 17 stacking and not have it be a detriment to, to your odds at winning the regular season. It was really interesting to me going through the data that not only was stacking important, but like advancing out of the regular season is important. I do think sometimes we're like, how good is this team once it makes the playoffs? Like, give me a team that's set up to win once it gets into the playoffs. But your odds of making the playoffs are an important part of the expected value equation. So I'd kind of seen like teams that were like near optimally stacked in the playoffs. 30 of those was worth like 35 kind of random teams. If you just assumed they were like possibly stacked, possibly not stacked, just an average um, rate of randomness in terms of advancing. So definitely an edge, but like getting through more teams is an edge too. And I think the idea is to try and do both as well as you can, which is kind of like for me, being able to be flexible on your feet in terms of the stacks you're making so that you're not giving up a ton of ADP value to just lock in a stack you're kind of letting it come to you. And that gives you a chance to sort of get the ADP value plus, plus get the stacks. You do risk a little bit of not completing that correlation. It might have some real bad teams with that approach though. Yeah, I, mean, I think it all makes sense. I'm on board. I think stacking just continues to you know, sh just prove out like why it's important. And I think this structure doesn't really change that. Um, so I think as right we on. go through this year, the other thing to mention is not all stacks are created equal. If you're paying higher draft capital to stack the uh, Chase, Burrow, Higgins, probably it's Chase, Higgins, Burrow, whatever, um, they need to surpass their expectations by so much versus if you were to stack this late QB, I mean, what, let's go with CJ Stroud, Nico Collins, John Mechie. Like the co draft capital there is so low that all they have to do is really become a top third, top half team. And that literally can provide so much value as long as the rest of your team is structured appropriately. Uh, so as we kind of, if we get into micro takes or aspects, like when I think of quarterbacks, yes, we love the running QBs. The elite QBs are very expensive. Maybe we may not be taking as much of them or whatever. So if I'm thinking about what is my portfolio going to look like when I'm bringing Kirk Cousins into my portfolio, when I'm in drafting players like, you know, uh, Jimmy Garoppolo, those are the guys where I know their rushing floor. I know their individual how they contribute to a high fantasy score is very dependent upon, you know, other fantasy catch, you know, fantasy, you know, pass catchers. So that's where I really want to focus on stacks too. Yeah. So 
I think we're agreed that stacking is still being prioritized and that's not changing with the structure. Some of the stuff that is changing for me and curious to get your take. I know you have a big high stakes bet on this contest and you structured that bet to kind of reflect, you know, the best way that you should play the contest, which makes sense. So you don't have to change your strategy for the bet um, and hurt your odds of getting your ROI in BBM four. But for me, one of the things I'm looking at in best ball manifesto was it was to me, it wasn't great to draft super early because you lost your odds of having live players come to playoffs was so low and you have a higher potential of getting like huge closing line ADP value because there's more variance that might help you build like a great regular season team. But that ADP value is a little bit less important come the playoffs. What's more important is that, you know, you're stacked and that you have players that are just contributing to your roster. You know, that's more likely to happen the closer to the start of the season that you draft. Now we have a third of the prizes in the regular season. I'm, I already took some shots when the contest was first released. Um, I knew the rookies would be undervalued when they had the default ADP in there before it sort of generated actual ADP the first couple of days. I'm probably going to hold off now until at least the week 17 or the schedules are announced. But yeah, definitely more value to me drafting earlier given I think I think you're going to need a super team that has like a shitload of closing line value in ADP to take down one of the top regular season prizes. Yeah. Um, and I mean, what we've seen from previous years research, and I'm not really trying to remember if the manifesto kind of dove into this, but as we get closer to the regular season, the top 1% of teams um, when they're drafted have a higher overall fantasy point rate. So the way, you know, closer we get to the season overall, even those best teams have a higher rate. However, the absolute like top 0.1% or 0.01% those are the ones that are drafted earlier on because those are the ones that have the opportunity to truly capitalize on that closing line value. And so that's where, if you are looking for that 500,000, like I do believe that 500,000 winner is more likely to come a little earlier in the draft season, or at least early mid before, because after obviously the first day when like, there's a little bit of craziness, the difference between now and I'm going to say early June, mid June, not that much information comes out. We don't really have many injuries. Um, and so this period is all kind of a similar period where I think like, hey, if you started today or if you go through early June, mid-June, you're probably still getting the same opportunities around closing line value. There's probably going to be a couple signings like we have Ezekiel Elliott, Leonard Burnett, Kareem Hunt that still don't have their homes. And it's more likely they find their homes over the next couple of weeks. Um, but you know, these are the things where, Hey, maybe you want to take some more chances on those. In our Slack the other day, we were talking about Joe Mixon. I think right now is one of the great times to be drafting Joe Mixon. If you right. want to get him in your portfolio, because there's two scenarios that happen with him, either his ADP goes substantially down worse. And that's probably because more news came out actually about his arrest, about he gets cut. They signed someone else. Those are actionable insights that are decreasing why we should be drafting Mixon appropriately, or he actually gets a larger role things look good and he starts slowly moving up. So I think like the risk uh, opportunity, you know, uh, for that is, okay, you should be drafting Joe Mixon. Now, if you want to get something in his portfolio, people who are drafting in August, Joe Mixon's going to be known. Yes. Maybe he's a higher ADP, but you know, or he has a lower, but like it's more accurately, it's a more efficient ADP. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just to extrapolate on the Mixon example in terms of like the drafting as if you're right, like I like to take one or two pieces of my draft just assume they hit and draft accordingly. You can't do that with all your pieces. You're going to end up, you know, not robust enough 
across the whole roster. But with Mixon, if you draft him as if you're getting a round three running back in round eight, and then you structure your team accordingly, like that's how you can build like a crazy super team, right? Like, like don't just like, I'm probably, I mean, I think you can still tack them on. It's like, Oh, this value's here. Like I'm structured how I am. But if you went into a draft and was kind of like, I'm like pretty sure I can get mixed in in round eight. And I'm going to assume that he's going to be around three value come the end of the summer. You can really build a team that's going to have, you know, you're still going to need to get really lucky obviously elsewhere, but I think that's kind of the, the right way to approach it. Yeah. And I mean, I think this year running back's probably the most interesting position for rankings and kind of draft structure, draft strategy. Because if I look at the top three rounds, like there are guys in the third round that I really like as a draft prospect. Mm-hmm. Like I mean, Ramondre Stevenson's there, Josh Jacobs. Like these are guys who legitimately, if things fall right, could be a top three, top five running back. And then obviously I'm liking a lot of the running backs ahead of that. So how do I actually plan my structure when I don't want to go RB, RB, RB? And I really don't even want to get two RBs in the top three, because as you're saying, what this does is when you lock in those kind of top two or top three RBs in those first two, three rounds is you miss any opportunity later in the draft to get value at the running back position. You are now basically locking that out. If someone falls, Joe Mixon falls three rounds past ADP. Sure, you could grab him, but you're not getting nearly as much value because you've already filled that spot. So in this structure where like there's so many running backs here. How do I, that's one of the things I'm going to drive you figuring out is like, Hey, how do I leave this with maybe it's one, maybe it's two, but like, if you, if you take two running backs very early, you're really kind of handcuffing or hamstringing yourself for the later rounds. You're missing potential opportunity. Yeah. The running back versus wide receiver dynamic will be really interesting to see how it plays out. We saw the wide receiver ADPs move up aggressively last year and According to the data, that was not overly done. In fact, teams were still building two running back heavy on the whole. And, you know, it's hard because like the specific player outcomes will shape like the structural data. So Justin Jefferson smashes early. Then you get Josh Jacobs, Miles Sanders, Kenneth Walker. Those guys are league winners late. And of course, investing in wide receiver early is going to look better than investing in running back. But there's also something to it. So it's, and now it's like, will people overreact to that? And I feel like early on, people might be slightly overreacting to what happened last year. You mentioned, you know, I've seen like Nick Chubb in round three, which kind of seems amazing in a half PPR format. And yeah, I'm experimenting with builds right now. I do agree overall, you probably don't want too many, like two running backs in the first three rounds, but you know, I experimented with like a three running back out of the gate build and just left it at three. And, uh, I think oddly enough, the hyper fragile stuff like works a little bit better earlier where you're just kind of hoping those backs stay the same and you can get some wide receiver closing line value with quantity, but yeah, it'll be really cool to see how, how all that plays out. Um, I'm trying to think like what else, as far as like big takeaways, I know like fast drafts versus slow drafts is one. Um, what did you have? It was just that you were talking about the structure because we can go through kind of talk about that bad and kind of I think that that helps kind of conceptually how do I approach this and so to give you some con- to give some context for what we're talking about uh, so I'm going to be doing a high stakes bet uh, where you're putting up fifty thousand uh, dollars as a head to head format and we were like okay how do we take the you know there's a lot of drama a lot of things going around in the poker world about head to head games how do we kind of mirror that for a best ball style. And it's difficult because you don't want to just say, oh, higher advanced rate. You don't want to just say like the best team or the ROI. 
because a lot of those teams are either extremely high variance in the ROI aspect, or it's if you're just focusing on advanced rate, well, then you're not focusing on what this tournament is telling you to focus on. So the way that we actually structured it, we're still finalizing, we're very close, is we're going to mirror the prize pool where just like 33% is going to regular season, we're going to do 33% going to advanced rate because I think advanced rate is probably the best way to play for that best ball mania regular season price. Yes, there's some slight variation around like you want to get that outlier team to get to the top. But I think it's mostly like, hey, best ball, I, I mean, advanced rate encompasses the regular season aspect. The other 67%, what we're going to do is a version where it's going to be similar for people who are um, familiar with points bet. Um, what we're going to do is based off our ROI on our entries, uh, that's what portion of that 67% of the rest of the prize pool is going to be paid out. So if I end up with a average ROI of $35 based off my $25 entry, so a plus 10 on my per entry basis, and my opponent ends up with a, let's say, loss of $5, so a 20, well, what we're going to be doing is saying, okay, so he's at 20, I'm at 35. Um, Matt, you basically end up taking that math and saying, okay, so my percentage is going to end up being, I think that's 67% or something better. Um, does that make sense? Yeah. But yeah, so you're winning you, 67% yeah. of the remaining 67% of the bet. Is that? Yeah. Let me do the math real quick. So, I mean, I'm at 30. If he lost, um, so I, I, okay. So, all right, let's say $25, I'm up five and he's down 10. In that scenario, I'm at 30, he's at 15. 30 divided by 45 is two thirds. So now I'd be paid out the 67% there. Um, yeah. Trying to do math in the spot or whatever. But yeah. what that does, it becomes proportional where if one of us blows out the other and gets like a top prize, your ROI on a per entry basis might be $75, $100, $1,000, like depending on how high you hit, you're now going to be receiving a larger portion of that. So how that becomes actionable for all of us is, okay, that allows me to think like, okay, so 67%, two thirds of my focus really is like, I still want to focus on week 17. I still want that team to really hit that nut outcome in that final week. But I also don't want to completely ignore that advance rate really is very important because as your manifesto showed, like advance rates is probably one of the strongest factors of how, what your overall ROI is, but it also is the most determinant for what happens in that regular season and maybe getting one of those regular season prizes. Yeah. What's hard for me is like a lot of times we talk about advance rate versus maximizing for the playoffs. And, you know, I had a tough time in the manifesto pinning down like what that actually meant in a draft. And it's hard because both of those things are like the effective cumulative decisions, right? You're not going to get absurd. You're not going to get in the top 10% of ADP value based off one pick. It's going to be, or, or, you know, you're not going to lose a ton of ADP value based off a single pick most likely you know, and same thing, like you can't build a stack with one pick or two picks, you know, if you're building for multiple game stacks and we know that you can achieve similar expected value by having either the most optimally stacked teams or the most optimally best ADP value in terms of closing line value or real time ADP value, like within the ADP you see within your draft room. So they're kind of even, and it's tough to just say, okay, at this pick, do I stack or do I take the value? Because again, it's cumulative effect. So that was difficult for me. I think some of the structural stuff is a little bit in terms of roster construction was almost easier for me. Positional allocation, I should say, to be more specific, was easier for me to visualize regular season versus playoffs. I think two quarterbacks versus three was an interesting one where the data for regular season is really quite clear that two quarterbacks is better than three. 
But some of like the best, best teams we looked at were like cheaper three quarterback teams where, you know, different stacks could hit at different times throughout the, the playoffs. And you could also get, this is more just adding subjectivity, but you could also get some more unique stuff through by having like an under owned quarterback that was dead on two QB teams, but you had a three QB team and the third QB got you through. So that's one that I see kind of a distinction where, and the QB prices are changing a little bit. So we could even see the regular season stuff come down on two QBs, but two versus three does seem like a regular season versus playoff optimization thing. Yeah. One of the most interesting things that I've been trying to kind of still figure out with your best ball manifesto was that clothesline value versus sacks. And it seems that, you know, they're fairly comparable. And when we're looking results, when we're looking back on the results, like, did you get ADP value or did you kind of stack appropriately? Um, they're both valuable, kind of at a similar rate. Now, one of those, though, we're only able to kind of guess whether we're getting closing line value. Like, I think Chris Godwin was a good example last year where, like, we were pretty confident that, like, once the news came out that, like, hey, he was going to be a bit more healthy, like, his ADP was going to rise as it went on, that was kind of a sharper take. But for the most part, like, we're not really that confident in where that closing line value is going to settle but we can be 100% confident or maybe 98% based off trades, blah, 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 that like you're getting a stack. And so it feels like we should be valuing these stacks while drafting more than the close line value because one of those we can guarantee that game stack, that person, that team stack, et cetera. Um, but when you then think about when you are drafting, I think it then goes to like, okay, if we're in August, it's even more challenging to get closing line value because yeah, we're I so will- close. Yeah. Yeah. The one thing I'll just jump in. I did look at the real time ADP value in the last part and it was surprisingly close to the EV of the closing line ADP value, which was surprised. It wasn't as strong, but it was better than, than I had expected. And and so it makes me like, if I am drafting early, if I want this kind of, Hey, this amazing elite top 0.01% outcome to to get that regular season, like maybe I actually am better focusing on the closing line value, hope that the stacks kind of fall to me and now I'm getting both closing line value on this player and that stack aspect. While as I get closer to August, maybe I'm more willing to say, hey, I'm going to focus on the stacks. I'm not going to really get that much closing line value here. Uh, How much more smart, like efficient, the ADP is pretty efficient by this stance. So that makes sense to me. Like the earlier you draft, the more you're probably trying to make these really super teams, like your your team's already risky. If you're drafting it early in terms of playoff success, because of the live whole live players thing, there's no way around it. So, you know, and the closing line ADP variance is higher. So yeah, just lean into it. And the other thing with like the real time ADP versus closing line ADP, it's like, if I get like, let's use Mixon for an example, Mixon's maybe not the best example, but let's say Jimmy or Gibbs, right? Let's say, I get him at pick 55 and his ADP in the draft room right now is like 43, you know? So I'm getting around the ADP value in real time. That also expands my ceiling of getting closing line ADP value a ton. So if he closes at pick 30, instead of getting one round of ADP value, you know, I I get two rounds of of closing line ADP value. And the, the point is like, if you want to build a super team, the best way to get huge closing line ADP value and mixing I didn't use because he's almost an exception where like you're going to see the swing no matter what, where you could actually take him ahead of real time ADP and see that huge closing line ADP value. But the point is like they're, they're pretty correlated. 
to to one another. Um, there's obviously going to be huge swings. If you take a guy, if you take Ramondre last year, like Karain did on his team, he took him, I think, ahead of real time ADP, but got huge closing line ADP value. That's obviously really good, but the point is, like, to get in that top bucket of closing line ADP value, you probably need to have gotten value in the draft itself and then gotten lucky as the thing played out. And then, as you said, as you get closer to the season, your variance is reduced there. The stacks are more known. And it does make sense to just build like really structurally sound teams that when they hit the playoffs are going to be built appropriately. And if you're building a structurally sound team, like it's going to have a plus EV advance rate too. Maybe not the highest it could possibly get, but it's still going to be good. Yep. Completely agree with all that. And I think like when you are going for your stacks, a lot of people are reaching for the stacks because you feel like, oh, I really need to get them. It's that much more valuable. But now not only are you giving up some closing line value and ADP value by reaching, you're not taking that other player that actually is falling for that real-time ADP value. And then you can consider maybe maybe it's a wash on their actual closing line value. But if you have a take that like, no, this player is actually a better one as well, there's a lot being given up there. And uh, I've mentioned it before, but like historically, I'd always been like, I'm drafting 150 of these. I actually want to wait to stack because one, if I have the QB already, I'm more, it's less likely someone else is going to be drafting that wide receiver. So it's more likely they actually fall lower than their ADP if I'm not reaching. Um, and then if I get in, like now I'm getting that stronger team and such. So I'm still trying to bake that in. Like I don't want to rest too much because I think it still is very important to stack. Um, but if we are going for these super teams, like now we're talking stack, we're talking closing on value, we're talking real-time ADP value, all of these coming together. And then, Hey, you actually hit your, why, you know, you hit, you hit your actual best range of outcomes with your actual team. Like that's how we set mm -hmm. ourselves up for success. Yeah. And a final distinction on the closing line teams I don't, or on the super teams, because I don't know if I made this clear, but the regular season over 14 weeks, it's much more likely that like the best team <laughs> is going to win, which is why you need a super team. When you make the playoffs, you've got three uncorrelated top heavy tournaments. It's less likely that the best team is going to win. You just kind of want differently built teams that are, that are optimized for the structure, which is like stacks in the given week. So that's like part of the reason why we're distinguishing between like the importance of a super team for the regular season prize. And like, obviously you'd love a super team going into the playoffs It'd be better than a non-super team, especially if it was healthy, but the gap is shrunk for sure. Fun hypothetical here that I think I saw in the replies, uh, maybe it was soon overs at tweet or something, but I think someone asked like, if you could get if you could take the first 18 picks in a draft so you get the first round in the next six do you think that team is a favorite to win one of these either regular season or week 17 finals Ooh. That, I, I when you say what do you mean by favorite like favored versus the field i i think more than 50 percent. so favored versus the field uh, okay. i would yeah. say definitely not in the playoffs Agreed. The regular season's tough because you're talking like 670,000 teams, but I don't, I don't know. There's part of me that's like, yeah, that team would be favored. And there's part of me that's like, there's going to be some team that just beats you. I don't know. What, what yeah. did you think? I think definitely not for week 17. And I yeah. think they're probably like less than 50% chance to even make it to week 17. Um, and I think that just highlights like how much randomness there is with that, you know, 
one game playoff slate and so forth. And then you make it to the finals and you've got to beat out 400 and some others like other players are going off. I think it's a favorite of the regular season. It is such a strong team. And in that scenario, like Mm -hmm. you are scoring elite points at every position every week. Um, I think so, but I think it's an interesting hypothetical, but yeah. Yeah. One we could possibly run back. Uh, We could, (laughs) we could outline the optimal 18 picks. We could figure out who won last year. Yeah. Yeah. We could figure it out. And this year we could do it ahead of time. Um, cause you might structure it a little differently based on the positions and get some stuff. But bottom line is that team is more likely to beat 677,375 teams in the regular season than it is to beat. I don't know. What is it? 150,000 teams in the, in the postseason. Like it, it's more likely to beat four X the amount of teams be, just because of the way the regular season variance is different from the, the playoff variance. Agreed. All right. Anything else before we, we hop out of here? Um, I think one other concept that I've been working with that stems from your uh, manifesto is this idea of draft capital. And so I've been really thinking about like, you know, I think well, who it was a couple of people, maybe it would have been ship chasing guys, but a couple of years, a year or so ago, we're thinking about like, Hey, maybe we should start thinking about these teams as an auction style where you're devoting a certain amount of dollars to each one. And I know you took that even further with actually adding like a version of like capital to each position. And so as I'm drafting, I've been working out this idea of like, hey, when I devote my mid, my late round picks, I'm already adding like a value to how much I've spent on the early rounds. And I think my old simplistic version of this is I've used my 2v2 where it's like, okay, I could draft this player now. And then later on, I need this other position and kind of compare those. Uh, But I think this kind of takes it on on steroids or like to that next level where I can actually think like, okay, this running back in this round cost me this much. This wide receiver cost me this much. I've allocated X amount to this position already. And so come round 17, 18, I'm kind of done with that. Or maybe it's round 13, 14. I really should be kind of tilting the scale on this position. Um, so I think like that is an interesting kind of just structure or way for people to kind of think about in in real time, based off who you've already drafted, what we're looking at, what we can kind of drive forward. Yeah, a few things off that. One, it was Karain who I think made the auction dollar comparison. Um, two, what, part of what you're getting at is there's an opportunity cost with each pick. It's not just the pick itself, but it changes what we can do later, you know, because we can only devote X dollars to, to Y position to kind of really optimize our team. So there's an opportunity cost with every pick. The third thing is, and going back to the mixing thing, the draft is if you're right thing, like we can devote less draft capital dollars to running back if we're assuming that Mixon's actually worth like a third round draft capital. You know, that changes the dynamic of the team. And you can do that in other ways with the draft is if you're right um, thing. Again, you don't want to go too far down the line with that and get a team that's more fragile than it needs to be. Because again, just like advancing and having live players, even in the playoffs, super important. But it certainly lets you play with that draft capital concept a little bit when you assume like, I know I'm right on this player and the ADP draft capital is this, but I'm assuming that it's actually like 25% higher that I've devoted to wide receiver because, because I trust my valuation on this player. Yeah. I think honestly, QB and tight end are the easiest player, the most appropriate place to do this from a fragility standpoint, because that for position by itself is already fragile because of how many you're drafting. And uh, so if you're doing a team with Anthony Richardson, I think he's a perfect example. Like 
for that team to really be successful, like Anthony Richardson needs to hit, you know, go off, like be having those upside. Maybe it's the Justin Fields uh, type weeks of last year. Um, but also, if Anthony Richardson does have this amazing year, you are going to be competing against so many other teams that also drafted him that the best teams will not have drafted a top five, seven QB. They will not have drafted three QBs. And mm-hmm. so if you want to play for in that scenario that he has this amazing year, you also then need to think about, okay, who am I competing against and how do I optimize against them? And you probably only want to pair him with someone like a, I don't know, Daniel Jones to a Kirk Cousins, maybe even lower. And it's a, uh, Garoppolo or Derek Carr or something. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a really fun contest to think through. Thanks so much for joining me, Justin. You can follow Justin at Justin Herzig on Twitter. He'll also be doing best ball content for us all summer at establish the run. We'll have some draft streams and whatnot. We'll get the details out to you on that. I'm contributing to our ranks, which Jack Miller, Mark Dane can bring for ETR have done a great job. They're up on established the run already for underdog. It's super easy to download those and upload them into underdog and use them as your default ranking set. It takes like five seconds. So make sure to check that out. Uh, if you're watching this on YouTube, subscribe us, give us subscribe to us, give us a thumbs up helps a lot. If you're listening on podcast, you know, give us a like a rating and review helps us to continue to do these podcasts for free. And like I said, we'll have a lot more Best Ball Mania 4 contest throughout. Thanks so much for tuning in, everybody. Best of luck this summer.